Welcome to episode 67 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Leah Henning, and with me today are regular panelists, Marie House, and listener and friend, Carter Suffer. Hello, Marie and Carter. Hi. Hello there. All right. Well, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Carter? Uh, yes, my name is uh, Carter Stepper. Um, I live up in eastern Washington, and I've been listening to shows on this network for quite a long time. Happy, uh, I've been on the Sectarian Review a few times, and happy to be on this uh, on CFP. Um, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I teach uh, high school history and civics primarily. Uh, I'm married with a couple kids and a, a, a grad student studying for a master's degree in theology right now. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that'd be good for the listeners to know, but, uh, that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. Wonderful. Well, I'm excited to hear what you have to say later in our theological discussions. Uh, Marie? Hi, and welcome to Carter to the show. This is great. Um, well, like Leah said, my name is Marie Haas, and I'm a regular panelist on the show. Um, I'm currently going to school at uh, Yale Divinity School, so I'm living in Connecticut here with my husband Jonathan and my two cats Pippi and Pippin, and we started getting some uh, a slight bit of colder weather recently, so my nose has been running, so apologies if I have to stop and blow my nose. I'm allergic to something with this weather, but anyway, that's me. <laughs> oh, well, I hope you feel better soon. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. My name is Leah Henning. I am living in Woodbury, Minnesota with a roommate and my cat, Lady Jane Grey, who, yes, is named after the historical figure. Um, And she's actually been running in and out of the room since we started recording. So if you hear background noise when I'm speaking, listeners, it's probably her. Um, I just moved back to Minnesota a year ago after completing my master's in European history. Um, I am a self-described Anglophile, so I was quite excited about this topic, which I believe was a listener's suggestion. So to whomever put this forward, I sincerely thank you. Um, Today, we are talking about the first season of the Netflix original series, The Crown, which is a biographical drama starring Claire Foy and Matt Smith that focuses on the reign of Queen Elizabeth in the United Kingdom. Season one was released in November 2016, and season two is scheduled to release this December, so that's something to mark down on your calendars. Um, This series, unlike other movies about Her Royal Highness, focuses on 
her early reign, starting with her marriage to Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark in 1947. And the season ends with the end of Princess Margaret's engagement to Peter Townsend in 1955. A lot of political ins and outs of Parliament and the palace are shown as Elizabeth learns how to fulfill her role in the light of her family history, specifically at the abdication of her uncle, Edward VIII, which happened just prior to World War II, which allowed Elizabeth's father, George, the sixth to um, succeed to the throne and lined up Elizabeth to the succession as well. Um, the role of the monarchy in an ever more modern world, and especially in light of a female monarch, is consistently revisited and redefined with every episode. Uh, the overall message being that almost, quote, I almost want to quote this, the crown must last. Um, balancing with Parliament, the people, the Church of England, and with being a member of a family, a private family. Uh, the creators of this show are definitely playing with the concept of the king's two bodies, which is something I'm sure we'll be bringing up later in our discussions. But with all of this great stuff going on for this show, there is an important pushback that needs to be addressed. Whether Elizabeth II is actually an empowering female character. So while this show does portray her as a wife and mother and queen, showing her maintaining some role within her family as well as her role as a monarch without apparent reliance upon her husband's guidance, it would seem that she would be an automatic empowering woman vote. But because of the predominance of male leaders, manipulators, and um, the seeming inconstancy of Elizabeth's choices, in this series. Because of those things, many have claimed that she should not be regarded as a feminist character or a worthy female hero, per se. So before answering these claims myself, I'd like to field it to my panel partners. How are you introduced to the show and do you see it as highlighting Christian feminism or even just an empowering female character? All right. Um, well, as happens these days, in terms of your first question, how, how I was introduced to the show, um, I just saw it advertised on Netflix. And, um, well, my wife and I watch quite a bit of British TV, so I imagine whatever algorithm they use um, figured out that uh, um, I would like that show. Um, it helps that, um, in addition to that, I do consider myself an Anglophile, read a lot of um, – English literature. Um, I'm actually religiously an Anglican, so um, the theology and the sort of relationship between the crown and the church are very interesting to me. Um, and then I'm a history teacher too, so dramatic historical tellings I, I find quite quite fascinating. Um, and, I've, and I've studied the monarchy of England a bit and World War II, so so the period is very interesting too. This sort of post-war 
um, modernizing world uh, and how that interacts with the tradition. So I've really enjoyed it, um, and uh, uh, I'm grateful that the show was made. It's it's really quite engaging. Um, as for the, st- would you like me to answer the second part of the question um, before we go? To- yeah, go ahead. So as for the second part, um, does it highlight or is it um, uh, giving a Christian feminist message? Um, maybe controversially, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'd have to answer yes and no. Um, it's really kind of interesting. Um, it, it does seem to present a, a pretty a kind of a, a, a almost stereotypically common issue, balancing obligations of personal life and vocation, um, often – Again, perhaps stereotypically seen as more difficult for for women than men, but certainly in this, that's the message, I think, Um, exacerbated by the fact that as the monarch, she's effectively in charge of English society, or at least a a leader of sorts. Um, uh, So you see that in the tension between her and her husband. so that you know standard social roles being reversed, I definitely see them pushing on that, and and, and how, how the roles of husband and wife in the sort of traditional way of seeing things is reversed um, does seem to be presenting something along the lines of a feminist message for sure. Um, I mean, she's the ruler of an empire, however fading it, it may be, um, and the Philip character definitely does not seem to handle that well as as we as the show goes on um but on the other hand on the other hand while i do see that um as an interesting uh, element of of the of sort of the, the, the underlying feminist message at the same time elizabeth throughout uh, seems less concerned to me to do this as some kind of advocate of equality um She's a monarch, after all, <laughs> so equality doesn't – I don't know. The message maybe isn't being carried through quite so strongly. Rather, it seems to me to reflect just as much tensions between tradition and a changing modern world, which does have application to feminist issues, but it's not exactly the same thing. Um, and uh, I, I have some stuff to say about the, the Christian aspect, but but I can I can save that for the time being. What, what do you uh, – what do you think, Marie? Yeah. Oh, um, well, I'm going to talk in a minute more about um, the aspects of uh, gender roles in the show, so I don't want to get into that too much. Um, I do appreciate the show focusing on a woman with power and having a lot of concern with female familial relations and the women working out these relations among themselves and so I appreciate that aspect but I have some problems with it which I'll get into but um, and as for the question of how I was introduced to the show I kind of watched it because I wanted to do this episode and it looked like an interesting show and uh, I do like a lot of things about it like the uh, it's very pretty to look at I love the costumes and the the color this recalling the Eastman color it's very um, calming and uh, beautiful and also the acting is tends to be very good but I also 
I, I didn't really like the show too much. I don't know. I know on on this podcast, I tend to get really into the things that we're talking about and be like, yes, they're the best thing, but I didn't really get into it this time. And it seemed like kind of slow and over dramatic. Um, and part of that might be not having my not having a background in the history of this period, like you do, Carter. So it's not. I don't really know exactly what it's commenting on and the, that sort of thing. But it just the way the story is being told, it's like so dramatic, like vi- dramatic violins that are weeping yearningly in the background as the palace staff lay out the silverware for Eisenhower maybe coming to dinner. And then there's dramatic violins for taking the silverware off the table because Eisenhower didn't come to dinner. And this is the way it is the whole time in the show. And I just get the feeling that things like they don't actually matter as much as the framing and the music and the whole show are trying to suggest that they matter. And that doesn't really have to do with the actual scale of events in real life, I think, because, um, I mean, obviously, for example, becoming a monarch could be a big deal. I think it's just in me watching the show, I don't really see the characters wanting things enough. Um, so, you know, like I could get more emotionally affected by like the tricks rabbit wanting tricks than I might get by the whole world being poised on the brink of destruction in a bad disaster movie. Um, like it has to do more with how much I see the characters caring than what the things at stake actually are. And so um, I think that that's trying to be there in the show, like, for example, with the portrayal of Margaret and Townsend, but it just, I don't know what it was. It just didn't really come across for me. I didn't really care about anyone in the show. So I'm sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't apologize for your own opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Like, I respect your opinion. I don't share it, but I respect it. Um, Likewise. (laughs) uh, Yes, obviously, I really liked this show. I was introduced to it before it was even released. Um, I was told that this was coming, that I would love it, and probably because I was told that I would love it, I didn't watch it until it was time for this podcast. <laughs> um, but I did. I fell in love with it. I am counting down the days until the second season is released, um, and perhaps that is because uh, I also have more of a background with English history. Um, so I, I see a lot of the things happening in this show as a continuation of, uh, the history that I studied in the early modern period and in World War One and in World War Two. Um, and there is that theological aspect that, uh, Carter will be touching on soon. And obviously there are a lot of issues that are tied together in this show because we're, we're tripping over ourselves not to spoil the conversations that we're about to have because everything is tied together into religion and feminism and empowerment. Um, but I do have to respond to uh, this pushback of 
a lot of the articles that arose after this series was released that were criticizing the character of Elizabeth as not being empowered, empowering to women. And that is that Elizabeth II is not meant to be a relatable character because uh, we were not born to be queens like she was. She was raised in a royal family to be a royal, perhaps not initially to be queen, but definitely part of the royal family. And because her father did become king, she was raised and taught to be um, a certain way and to hold certain ideals that, like Carter said, might not be the most equalizing or uh, not as easily transferable to our modern perceptions of feminism or empowerment, but definitely because of the interaction between what she is going through in, in a very ancient um, institution of monarchy in a world that is emerging a modern world that is emerging after World War II and going into the Cold War. Um, it's really quite impressive, I think. So I'm going to agree with Carter that the answer is yes and no, that this is an empowering feminist uh, character that we see on screen. But there is a lot to unpack theologically um, especially with the history that um, brought Elizabeth to be queen, um, which I believe Carter has some things to say about. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Leah. Yeah, that's great. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I think I largely agree with what you're saying there. And, and um, there's some interesting stuff about her agent, Elizabeth's agency. Um, but I thought I'll probably try and touch on that here in a minute. Um, uh, specifically, the uh, when Churchill is ill, um, he doesn't communicate about his illness, and and she basically dresses him down um, and says, oh, "I have a quote here. Um, I would ask you to consider your response." She's asking him about the illness. I would ask you to consider your response in light of the respect that my rank and office deserve, not that which my age and gender might suggest. Um, that was a great moment. That was a you know stand up and clap kind of moment. That was um, a really fabulous sort of. Uh, uh, really, there's like this implied coddling almost from Churchill and Parliament and some of those, um, and she's she's trying to work in a system that doesn't allow her much agency, uh, but requires a lot from her. In, in the way of specified duties. So it's, it's, I think it's at the very least figurative and could definitely be taken literally as an obstacle. You know, there's the thing that you are that's expected of you and you don't have much choice or agency in the matter. And I think that's, um, I mean, that's clearly a concern of, of, of feminism, I think. Um, so, so anyway, I just wanted to, to, to say that in response. Um, to what you were saying, Leah, um, on the the 
issue of history and the relationship with the church. That, of course, is unique in England, um, as, as I'm sure you are more familiar with than I am, Leah. Um, obviously, uh, for those with, with any familiarity here, as the monarch, she's the supreme head of the Church of England, um, anointed as a God-ordained monarch. That's, that's I think, how the, the liturgy goes something along those lines. Um, this is a sacred, considered a sacred duty, right? Um, uh, I mean, the fact that in England the Parliament still consists largely, uh, well, of lords and bishops um, in the House of Lords. The, the bishops are a part of even the legislation of England, uh, and this is really brought to a head and full of tension in the storyline of Margaret and Group Captain. Uh, Peter Townsend, which I found a really interesting thread throughout. Um, so George VI dies. He has no son, and so he has to appoint one of his children as monarch. This um, was not originally expected because, uh, as I remember it, his brother, Edward the – oh, goodness. Um, Edward VI? I might be wrong about his brother. Close. Edward VIII. Edward VIII, thank you. Edward VIII um, was appointed monarch and then abdicated uh, for reasons of his own, for personal uh, personal relationship um, that sort of bears some analogy to what happens with Margaret. Margaret's, of course, Elizabeth's younger sister. And I was interested in this thread, not because of the romantic melodrama, um, uh, you'll be happy to hear, Marie, uh, but for the... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm with you on the the, the melodrama. That, that was not the most interesting part of the show for me either. Um, Downton Abbey does it better, so. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the religious and political implications were really fascinating to me. Um, a central ep episode for this is, I, I, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it's Galignite, I think. Um, uh, but the, the storyline continues throughout this season, and it's one of the central tension points um, so with an established church in England uh, one that is deeply united to the monarchy uh, that places certain obligations on Elizabeth she is the supreme governor of the Church of England um, Henry VIII claimed himself supreme head declared himself supreme head of the Church of England under Elizabeth I they changed the word from head to governor um, partly because of um, Protestant concerns over Christ being the only head of the church, and I imagine partly because Elizabeth, as a woman as well, um, that, that would raise a number of eyebrows and concerns, not least of which with the um, people like John Knox up, up north in Scotland, who wrote some pretty terrible things about Elizabeth. Um, but unfortunately, what this means is effectively the role of the, the monarch in the church has been somewhat ambiguous. Technically, they're in charge of the church, but typically it's a titular function. It's, um, it's a, 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 a person who is looked to as head. Um, they appoint archbishops and bishops, but um, functionally, they're not to determine – They at least they haven't in recent years determined things like doctrine or practice um, – and they, they don't actually ordain anyone either. Um, but they are to enforce the faith, you might say, throughout throughout the realm. Um, it's ceremonial, largely. But um, what that relationship does is, to, even though the monarch is head of the church, they're also beholden to the church. And 
have to recognize the social function that the church bears. So when Margaret comes to Elizabeth and wants to marry Peter Townsend, who has been recently divorced, Elizabeth wants to let her, but when she goes to the church and parliament about it, they are rather unsupportive and regardless of where um, any one of us or anyone listening are on the question of divorce and remarriage, the situation, I think, reflects really well the deeply intertwining nature of tradition and religion and social life in England. Um, Elizabeth wants to avoid a scandal, which is historically ironic given that Henry split from Rome so he could <clears throat> annul his marriage uh, to Catherine of Aragon. Uh, but um, this really points out the tension, I think, between the tradition the old way of doing things, so-called, and the new modern way of doing things. And Elizabeth seems really torn here. She seems unable to make up her mind. She wants to be loyal to her sister, um, and she wants to give her sister what she, what, what she desires, uh, this husband that, that uh, would be a wonderful husband. But when push comes to shove, she bows to her role as monarch, and she bows to the will of the church and the parliament in this situation. And that's especially pointed in a later episode, um, which I did not write down, and I apologize for that. But in a later episode, she go, uh, they go on a um, tour of Northern Ireland, and we find out that the people at large are actually fine with the Margaret-Peter relationship. They would love for them to be married. But even so, um, Elizabeth and the church and parliament refuse to give Margaret that. Now, uh, this has to do with – I mean there's actual legislation. The Royal Marriages Act of 1772 actually gives the parliament the say in royal family marriages. Um, but this is an interesting division between, um, between Elizabeth and Margaret, and, it, and it's a little hard to navigate because we're not told exactly what's behind it. Um, does Elizabeth really want to help her sister, or I wondered is it possible that – there's something in the character of Elizabeth that makes her envious of Margaret's relative freedom compared to her own life and the obligations she has. Um, in, in her role as a monarch, is the avoidance of scandal really doing what's best for the nation, or is this just a way of making her own life easier? Um, and she's denying – really, it, it ends up being that Elizabeth seems to be denying Margaret the very thing she herself wants, which is agency. In that same episode I, I mentioned earlier, um, uh, she says to uh, she says to Winston Churchill that it would be nice for her to be able to make a choice of her own. Uh, I was hoping she said I might, it might be possible for me to make my own decision just once, uh, but in this case she's um, she's refusing to let Margaret make her own decision just to avoid scandal. Um, she's la really remaining beholden to the traditions of her people um, and is kept, I think, from being able to advocate for advances in these areas of life. And uh, I'm interested to see what season two, if anything, does with um, this aspect of Elizabeth's character, um, if, if this is going to continue or if there's going to be some um, some nuancing to that. Um, did I uh, leave anything out? Any comments on, on that, or um, what do you what do you ladies think about this? Um, no, I think you did a wonderful job recap, re like 
rehashing that and explaining it much clearer than I could. <laughs> um, I kind of saw a hardening in Elizabeth's character um, from the beginning when we see her as a newlywed and with Philip and their children in Greece uh, to the, the last episode where the last shot is of her in all of her royal regalia and the crown standing alone and on the edge of something um, that will be revealed in season two, I'm sure. Uh, but I think that the ongoing theme of divorce and remarriage, as you pointed out, it, it was so central to this season um, because even from the very beginning, we have the conflict between Edward and George uh, and George the sixth is actually alive in the first couple episodes um, and does play a major role as any king should. Um, but setting up that conflict between Edward and George and really George's whole family, which includes the Queen Mother and Margaret and Elizabeth, because of almost selfishly, if I could use the term, choosing his own path that did not align with his sovereign duties um, as king and head of the church. It, it's just a very interesting um, thread that continues through Margaret and Peter's relationship and also the growing strife that I see with Elizabeth and Philip's relationship. I really, can I just say that I really was quite annoyed by Philip. I love Matt Smith. I'm a Doctor Who fan, but Philip's just kind of a, it's just kind of a twit in this show. Yeah, I agree. Matt Smith doesn't really redeem him. <laughs> <laughs> I really think that it's on purpose how Matt Smith and Claire are portraying Elizabeth and Philip because nope, it seems to be an ongoing theme even today that oh nobody can tell what Elizabeth is actually thinking or what her intentions are and in the show there's still that disconnect or removal where we never quite know what Elizabeth is thinking or feeling. Yeah, which allows for your interesting idea, Carter, that she's maybe working things to her own ends and um, denying Margaret this, doing actually what she wants because of her jealousy. Like maybe we could see her capitulations over the course of the show as actually doing what she wants ultimately, except I think probably not, but because you can't really tell. I mean, the reading's there, I guess. Maybe. Maybe she's secretly <laughs> getting what she wants, yeah. But, but I mean, in a certain sense, I, I mean, if I could play the other side of my own argument, I guess, um, I'm pretty conflicted on this and examining this because, on the other hand, she is queen. She has a responsibility. 
and that um, that can't just be swept aside for family in this case. She she recognizes the sacredness, uh, at least as they see it. I don't know if I'd say it's um, particularly sacred just because they say so, but she sees this as a sacred duty, right? A divine calling, even. Um, and so, uh, on a certain level, I do have to respect the fact that even though her pers- she personally wants to help her sister, um, she has to do she has to do what um, she has to do these kinds of things because she, that's part of her role. That is that is um, her her mission in the world is to fulfill this particular role as monarch. And so, I don't know. I guess I guess I want to at least give her the character the benefit of the doubt or the writers and say that. Um, they're maybe demonstrating that that's okay, right? That's okay for, and so it's more to be more feminist in this way, and that it's okay f- um, for a woman to place the role before her, the vocation she has above some of these other things, um, even her sister. Uh, although I will say I do wish they would have had perhaps some more positive interactions between Elizabeth and Margaret. I, I don't feel like the conflict between them was quite earned um, because we don't aside from scenes of them as children we don't really see them ever really being nice to each other hardly so I, I kind of feel like it would have been nice to see what was lost um, I don't feel like they did a good job of, of that um, but anyway yeah I, I agree that her choice to um, not allow Margaret to marry Townsend is presented in the show as something that's kind of noble and heroic I mean that's my reading of it too and you could take it the way that you're suggesting that um, you know this is showing the woman following her vocation um, putting that before the traditional female role of, of um, just caring for her family um, but I kind of have some other thoughts on that too is it okay if I move on to, to uh, the thoughts on gender roles Leah? Please do this is a perfect segue Sure <laughs> Okay so this is another aspect of the show that kind of I don't, didn't really grip me just because it was so kind of conflicted for me. So I do have that yes and no aspect that you guys are talking about, um, though I'm perhaps a little more on the no side. Uh, and so like we've, like we've been talking about, the overall dramatic arc for Elizabeth, her main conflict that's emphasized over and over and sometimes in pretty much on-the-nose dialogue is that she's confronted with this, the incompatibility of these two roles as a woman and as a queen. Um, This is uh, her central conflict, you know, whether or not to sacrifice her human desires for the greater good as she inhabits the role of the queen. And of course, the spoilers that she does always pretty much sacrifice her human desires for the role of the queen. Um, So that's a pretty normal character dilemma to have, right? But it gets a little complicated for me because, like we just said, it's kind of framing Elizabeth as nobly making this choice for self-sacrifice and self-immolation over and over again. And on the one hand, you could see this as her sort of subversively occupying a kind of often more masculine heroic role, like we would expect a hero to nobly sacrifice his life for the for his country or something like that, you know. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think this is just like a subversive occupation of a male heroic role. It's also fulfilling the expectation for an everyday female role, 
um, that she bend her desires to the men around her, the men around her, that she sacrifice herself in this self-emptying labor for others. Um, so it sort of reminds me of something that the scholar Nicola Slee talked about in a lecture I heard in relation to female figures of Christ. She studies the Christa figure in art. Um, she says that a risen Christa figure, rather than one who is crucified and portrayed on the cross, um, can have a power that can be very important to female viewers, a power to combat the drive towards self-abnegation that women often are encouraged to have, um, encouraged even by the church sometimes. She says that women don't necessarily need to be told to be self-sacrificial like Christ, and instead, in a risen Christa figure, she Slee suggests um, you see a figure of wholeness and power and radiant life. Um, so that's just a little side note, something it reminded me of. But anyway, Elizabeth's capitulation, in contrast to that, seems to be um, the, the, not so much a noble, heroic sacrifice that I want to celebrate as maybe the performance of this gender expectation of self-sacrifice uh, writ large, maybe even perhaps an unwitting maybe celebration and reinscription of that expectation on the part of the show by portraying it as grandly heroic. Um, and like we've been talking about, she does this with, in the case of her sister's marriage. We also see it with her keeping the Windsor name and with her choosing her own secretary are a couple other examples. And at the same time, though, there's, there's another layer to this for me because, of course, Elizabeth's relations with her immediate family are central to this. The things she's sacrificing aren't usually things that are related to her own like general self-actualization actualization or self-fulfillment or things like that, but more often are related to her ability to fulfill this everyday self-abnegating role in the service of her immediate family, her ability to give Philip what he wants or to support her sister at her own cost and that kind of thing. Um, so it kind of really does make me feel conflicted from a feminist viewpoint. <laughs> um, so let me explain briefly with reference to uh, one, uh, one episode, um, episode three, titled Windsor. And that refers, of course, to the name of the royal family. One of the plots in the episode is Elizabeth's desire to change the name of the royal line to Mountbatten, her husband's name. And, of course, she eventually gives up this idea at the urging of Churchill, the cabinet, and uh, the Duke of Windsor. So we start off with what Elizabeth wants. She wants to be allowed to take her husband's name, which is, you know, well and good. And it's presented, though, perhaps more as something that Philip and his uncle really want rather than maybe Elizabeth's own original idea, though she seems to want it too. Um, she mostly wants to do it in order to give them what they want. And so she's fulfilling her wifely role of supporting her husband's identity over her own. Um, so it starts off a little conflicted because I want to support her and her um, her desires. But I'm also like, oh, this isn't hugely progressive either, but it's not really negative. Um, but then we go on to a meeting with Churchill at the core of the episode where Elizabeth states that central conflict for her character. She says bluntly, Yes, I'm a queen, but I'm also a woman and a wife. And I still feel conflicted at this point because, like, is a woman and wife the central thing to define yourself by? Like, maybe, no. But then um, the episode goes on. I start rooting for her some more in this 
um, powerful scene where she really starts to take some authority and she puts her foot down and tells Churchill that he he won't just ask the cabinet to let her change the royal name, he will inform them. Um, she also in this scene shows her political savvy by using her knowledge of how Churchill is playing for power and delaying the coronation. Um, she uses this bit of information to have some influence over him. But then, and this is a pattern that's really annoyingly repeated for me across the entire season, Elizabeth gets some more advice, uh, this time from her uncle, after she asks him to apologize to her for abdicating the throne because it's um, kept her from living, she says, a simpler life, a happier life, as wife, a mother, an ordinary English countrywoman. Anyway, the Duke of Windsor advises Elizabeth to keep the Windsor name and also to move to the palace from Clarence House, which um, staying in Clarence House was another thing that Philip had wanted to do. So, as she will do many times, then Elizabeth realizes that what she had wanted and had been asking for, she can't do, she can't have. She gives in and does what the cabinet wants, announcing that the royal family will still be called Windsor. Um, so, even though this is a show about a powerful woman in a prominent position, um, the effect, to me anyway, sort of feels more like a woman caught in competing areas of feminized uh, of feminized submission. Like she can't submit to her husband like she, of course, naturally wants to do um, because she has to submit to the country instead. And neither system with its demands of sacrifice really feels unconstrained in the show. And it's almost like the restraints of her role as queen in the show could be read as this uh, critical commentary on the restraints of her role as wife and mother, like the one's almost a microcosm of the other. Um, but actually, I don't really get the feeling that the show is doing that. But it might be a possible reading. Um where she is trapped into asserting some stance that might code to us viewers now as progressive, like keeping her name, it's because she doesn't want to. So it seems to be celebrating her heroic nobility and this, for me, kind of nauseatingly constant self-sacrifice, instead of making some sort of comment on problems with restrictive gender roles. So it's kind of uncomfortable this repeated narrative arc for me and it doesn't actually feel very feminist to me in the end but um that's just one reading of it and i know you guys probably have some more <laughs> ideas on this that you want to uh, talk about here well um I, I did um notice something similar to that i think marie um despite the fact that like Elizabeth is often pushing back on various issues in the show and basically having to, 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 to um, shut Philip down <laughs> essentially because he's uh, she, she has a role to fulfill that he, you know, would, he's supposed to have a better um, understanding of, but doesn't and is not very supporting. But despite the fact that she is pushing back on various issues, um, she tends to, give in to pressure to the pressure of men throughout the show if it's not her husband it's churchill or parliament or the bishops and that that was a little i mean i, I guess it's historically accurate um to some degree that that part of it which is also fr a little frustrating because it kind of feels like she pushes back but then d doesn't she she gives up rather quickly and i'm not sure how to read that i'm not sure if that's just trying to build more tension um, or not, but it does, I think, detract some from seeing her in that role. Um, but maybe then again, it's simply 
I don't know. You guys tell me. Maybe it's simply trying to um, – maybe it's tra- trying to just demonstrate how difficult this sort of thing actually is, how difficult it is for um, a, a person like Elizabeth to – um, to have a, a life where she can balance those things, not just because she's royalty, but because she's a woman. But I'm, I, I'll, I'll admit to being the novice here on some of these things. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear what, um, what you have to say, Leah, on that. Well, I have to agree that there is this issue with Elizabeth, um, almost giving up on her power or what we perceive her power to be as a monarch. But to be honest, most of the time I, in the season, I could see that more as a growth in her understanding of her role as monarch, as she quite literally grows into the role where at the beginning she's the happy princess and at the end of the season she is that very solid queen um, who is standing on her own Um, she's not necessarily going on what other people are saying or telling her to do she's taking it into account but she is making those decisions on her own i saw the the choice um for her uh her decision with margaret and peter's engagement as um (laughs) i i like that you called it sickeningly self-sacrificing marie but I I saw that as a turning point in her character where, yes, she was determined to do, to to make sure that Margaret and Peter would be able to marry. But when she is consulting with all of these people, she slowly is realizing that they would never be allowed to marry um, and for her to retain her sister if they were to marry margaret would have to essentially be sent away and severed from the family like her uncle edward had been when he abdicated and um and uh married a divorced american so i'm i'm going to bring in a term that i i mentioned at the beginning which is the king's two bodies Usually it's a term that's applied to uh, earlier monarchs, early modern, if not medieval monarchs. Um, And it's the notion that uh, the king is both a man, but also a divine being appointed by God to rule. So on one hand, we have the body politic, who is that um, figure that is anointed with holy oil and is that figurehead of a nation. And then there's the body private, which is who that king is behind closed doors. And 
with this series, you kind of see them crumbling together, both the body politic and the body uh, private, where um, the media is now publishing without respect to the monarchy, where um, the coronation is just a show uh, for people to gawk at instead of this holy thing. Um, and Elizabeth is kind of standing in the middle of it with these very strained gender roles, uh, trying to hold the pieces together and hold the crown, which is in essence, those two bodies together, trying to hold it in, in one piece. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, I suspect we might see the whole show having this arc of showing the crumbling of the power of the uh, empire, which of course is pretty much, um, you know, non at, at this point is already failing pretty badly. Um, and you might have that, that connection between the power of the empire failing and um, this crumbling between the body po politic and the body private for the monarch um, as all of these boundaries are getting blurred and um, her power as monarch like that divinely appointed role is that also going away as you get uh, lose the sense of England having this divinely appointed role to rule the world basically um, to own all these other bodies in the world uh, anyway yeah so that might be an interesting connection we'll see in the show as it progresses yeah that that connection with the the, the crown and the church again I'm going to go back to that I mean this is clearly divine right of kings um, kind of language that's used in the the episode where she's coronated um, but it feels so out of place, doesn't it? I mean, especially with the um, the way Philip um, modernizes the coronation, it, it feels like a weird disjuncture, uh, um, right between these two things: the 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 old and the modern, and and they don't quite fit together, do they? Um, I think you were right to sort of focus in on that, um, Lee. It's a very, very, very kind of strange transition going on. Um, and I guess uh, on one level, I don't want to, I don't want to be too hard on the character of Elizabeth because, um, I mean, you're right that she is self-sacrificing. Uh, I mean, she is choosing to fulfill this office that is a, a deeply important office and making personal sacrifices for it. I mean, would wouldn't we expect the same? from our own leaders in, in, in the United States. I mean, wouldn't we want them to place the office uh, on a, on a, as a higher calling than even their personal preferences? Um, so, so I guess on that level, I'm, I'm willing to, to, to say that, yeah, she's doing an, an honorable thing. It just becomes far more complicated, I feel like, because of the the integration of church, state, and um, the two bodies—the body, by the pr private and the public bodies. 
Um, so, but that, yeah. Yeah, and along with that, I think it's important to point out something we've talked about on um, some other episodes, which is that, like, obviously we don't need every every female character to be the one the one strong female character. So it's good to have like the variety of characters and have a complex character like this. And so like, that's not so much my problem as what seems to be like the overall message of the show that it's sending in the way it's using our character and how that fits in with gender roles. But um, yeah, that's a whole, the variety of characters thing. That's a whole nother topic. We probably don't have time to get into. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Probably not, but it would be very interesting if any of our listeners um, had some things to say about what they saw in the gender roles of Elizabeth, because obviously the three of us, we could go on talking about this um, for hours, but we don't want to put anybody else through that, I don't think. <laughs> I, I did a quick question. Could I, could I ask um, you guys a question? Um on on the level that let's say Elizabeth is making a sacrifice and conforming to a role that possibly she doesn't even agree with um that that seems like it's a, it's a potentially dangerous message um in terms of 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 communicating sort of feminist lines of thinking um I mean, if I could draw an analogy to try and understand it, it almost seems like it's it that's saying it's okay to it's okay to back away from your convictions if you have a responsibility if you have a responsibility to to maintain this role. And so, maintaining the peace and unity of the crown and tradition is more important than what you would prefer to see happen. Uh, is that is that a fair reading of that? I, I'm I might be getting that wrong, but I I, I just I wanted to s- clarify if, um, that and see what you thought. Sorry, I'm I'm a little confused. What the what was the question? The is it is it appropriate for Elizabeth to to make this kind of sacrifice, um, these kinds of sacrifices, if they actually go against her personal convictions? Would I mean wouldn't that really be contra to um, to, to a, a more thoroughly feminist message. Does that, does that make more sense? Hmm. I mean, yeah, I would say on one level and then on another level, there's also the question of uh, where her personal convictions are coming from and if like we would now agree with her personal convictions um, being convictions related to what would be conventional for gender roles in the 1950s in England. Um, So, I mean, it's complex, I'd say. I think that's a very interesting question. Um, And I, I wouldn't just narrow it down to being applicable to feminism. Um, Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's an ethical question in general. (laughs) Yeah. Like, uh, at what point is it okay to walk away from your convictions for a, a quote-unquote greater good? I, 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 like the first person that I can think of off the top of my head uh, to correlate would probably be Bonhoeffer, <laughs> um, 
who uh, was a, a pacifist who didn't want to be involved in war, but then took up arms against Hitler because he felt that that was his religious duty. Um, quite literally walking away from his convictions for what he thought was the greater good. And in a, a quite a different way, we see Elizabeth doing that here, but... Um, or is he walking away from what other people were claiming was the greater good and following his convictions? <laughs> well, well, exactly. <laughs> well, moving from this wonderful and very complex uh, ethical, theological, um, gender role conversation that we are having, um, it is time for us to pass on some resources that we have found that we would like to suggest for readers or listeners, goodness. Uh, Marie, would you like to start? Sure. So, I've been pretty pessimistic in this episode, so I want to uh, suggest a more optimistic feminist reading of the show um, so that you listeners can have some resources for making up your own interpretations of how you see this show working with feminism or not. Um, so the article I'm suggesting reads season one of The Crown as feminist with Elizabeth's story, as the author says, one of... Uh, a, a story of the triumph of female power in a world dominated by men. Um, the article is called The Crown is a Low-Key Guide to Outfoxing men, the Men in Your Way, um, and it was published on the website Mashable on November 30th of last year, um, and it's by the author's name is Rachel Thompson. So she argues broadly that Elizabeth's power over her husband and her negotiations of power with the male cabinet members make her something of a fi feminist figure. And I have reservations on that, but you can decide. Um, and let me also suggest along with that a response to it a few days later, also on Mashable by author Brittany Levine Beckman, which raises a couple of points similar to the points of conflict that I have, um, though she doesn't really come to a strong conclusion about what she thinks the show itself might be saying about feminism. Um, so I'll put the links for those in the show notes. What about you, Carter? Uh, my first one is also um, from the Mashable website. I, um, there were some very helpful ones, and this one is titled, No, Netflix The Crown Isn't About Feminism. It Doesn't Have to Be. Um, <laughs> ha ha, that's the second one I was suggesting. There we go. <laughs> well, there you go, by Brittany Levine Beckman. Yes, so, so that was, a, that, that was a, a helpful article for me as well um, because it, it highlighted – that helped highlight for me how the tension really – yeah, the tension is really between um, this role as queen and maintaining tradition, um, and her role as a as a as a wife and mother, and um, and taking the the country into a into a modern world. And um, so it can be a ver it's still a rich and textured show. It doesn't necessarily need to be about feminism, even though I, I disagree with bits of the article here and there. Um, I would uh, I had one more that's kind of a it's not. Probably the most interesting uh, 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 a thing that I could point people to, but it's um, it's an article from the Telegraph, the UK um, uh, magazine. It's on their website, and it's 
um, it's questioning the idea of the um, the monarch's role as head of the church. And I was really just doing this as a bit of the research to understand that role. Um, it talks about um, how now an issue facing the church in England is is whether the uh, monarch has to even be um, in communion with the Church of England, whether they could be Catholic or not. And so it's just kind of bringing in some of the contemporary issues surrounding this. It's not specifically regarding um, the, the, uh, the feminist discussion we've had, um, but I thought it was a helpful insight into how the monarchy and the church actually relate to one another. So Those sound like fantastic articles. I have to admit, I did not explore Mashable when preparing for this episode. <laughs> Um, obviously, I missed out. Obviously, you would... did more than a, a Google-level research for this. <laughs> Googling the crown and feminism <laughs> to find some things. Okay. You have to do what you have to do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, I will be checking out those links from the show notes um, once we post those. But uh, my uh, recommendation is I'm going a bit more old school. I'm recommending a book, um, and it's The King's Two Bodies by Ernst Kantorowicz. Mm. This is actually the book that started that phrase and um, highlights several monarchs and unfolds, if you will, um, the the many roles of a monarch and what a monarch is supposed to live up to. Uh, It's quite famous within certain academic circles. Uh, I think everybody should read it, but I'm sure that is just my own bias. And I think it plays strongly into how Elizabeth is portrayed in this series. Um, But before we officially end, uh, because we are now done with our discussion of the crown, on this podcast at least, uh, I would also like to shout out to all of our Facebook followers, both the old and new. We have been having some wonderful discussions on our page and have been receiving some amazing suggestions for future podcasts. Um, I would also like to remind listeners that there will be a Christian humanist panel at the Dort conference titled Culture, Criticism, and the Christian Mind. Their panel will be on Friday, November 3rd at noon. Uh, You do need to register for the conference and get tickets to the CHP taping, which you can do at www.dordt.edu slash events or at the link that we will post in the episode notes. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. 
The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Amber Lee Copeland is our intern. For Marie House and Carter Stepper, I'm Leah Henning. Tune in in a few weeks when we'll discuss multi-level marketing. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.